0: You are listening to Studying Pixels, a podcast on game studies and video game culture. I'm Stefan, a game studies scholar from Germany. I'm Dan, a Japanese scholar from Texas. And you can find us every Sunday on studyingpixels.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Today we're going to talk about gamification, probably one of the most uttered buzzwords of our day and age.
1: <laughs> yes, I think uh, gamification, immersion, and games that make you really feel like Batman. Those yeah. are
0: the three. <laughs> games as a service. Oh, the, oh that's a good one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but gamification, that is in, very simply defined. That's when you do a couple of squats and then you get like a level up for it. It's helpful, especially for people like us who are so in
1: ingratiated into video game culture because i'm sure you do this too i i kind of do it with everything at least everything that makes sense for it so yeah you mentioned squats uh my, my my big thing is if i can gamify the gym i will do it in any in any way possible
0: mm, yeah the gym that's definitely one of the biggest areas of application i think fitness apps paired with fitness trackers are so common, and of course, they do have a positive effect in motivating people and helping them understand a little bit more about their progress, which is really nice. For me, for example, I use it with Apple Fitness. Yeah. When I, you do some fitness at home, you got your Apple Watch on, and then it shows you these rings, like the move and the fitness ring in the corner of the screen, and you can see you know, how it makes progress with every movement that you do, and then ultimately you're like burning through the ring, and it's like this nice effect. It's really nice because, especially
1: for people who like RPGs, it's nice to know, okay, I'm getting closer to ni- another level. It just, it's something about, all right, why can, I, why can I spend hours grinding my Pokemon team, but I can't spend
0: an hour in the gym grinding on myself? <laughs> it's true. It applies these exact same gaming logic to real life stuff, to stuff that mm. actually matters in your day-to-day life. Although I must say, one thing that I sometimes struggle with with gamification is its competitive nature because I'm not not really a competitive person. I don't like to compare myself to myself, yes. I want to have yeah. encouragement that basically measures me against progress that I've made before, but not so much against other people. Like I do a fitness competition integrated into this Apple fitness thing with a friend. And you, we like basically every week we have this challenge of who burns more calories in a day. And for me, I'd actually, I actually, after a couple of days, I turned off all the notifications because it's just too annoying. When you're, like, you're sitting on the couch, you're chilling, you're playing a video game or something, and then it's like, hey, your friend just did a four kilometers run. <laughs> what are you doing? You know? It's
1: like, well, I'm playing Dragon Quest.
0: <laughs> yeah, of course I'm playing Dragon Quest. What else am I going to do? <laughs> I also use it a lot with language learning because, of course, I'm learning a lot of Japanese and Duolingo is one of the apps that I use most frequently for that purpose. I know Duolingo on its own is not an ideal way to learn a language, but it is good to keep you practicing every day, just 10 to 15 minutes to basically prime your brain and be like, yeah, just think about some Japanese for today. In that way, it's really good exactly because of its gamification logic.
1: Well, and Duolingo is such a good example of gamification done almost sinisterly, right? Because it not only keeps you doing Japanese learning or any language learning, but it's built in such a way that it it is compelling you to keep using it. And that, I think, is something that any good video game does, where you say, all right, I want to keep playing this or I want to get stronger. Duolingo takes that core gamification and says, all right, you want to keep learning Japanese keep going, you know, instead of 10 minutes a day, maybe you do 15 minutes a day. Here's a bunch of experience points.
0: A bunch of experience points, a bunch of gems that you then can spend mm. in order to purchase, for example, a streak freeze. Because yes, every day you rank up by plus one in your streak. And then if you've got, as I have, a couple of hundreds of days of a streak going, it sends you these notifications hey, uh, the, en- the day is like coming to an end and uh, you only have to do 10 minutes of this and then you can extend your streak. What are you going to do? Uh, it has <laughs> this kind of, it really enforces this idea of just let me keep my streak. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, this is going to be the topic of today's episode. We're going to talk about gamification. Specifically, we're going to read an article and as always, dissect it step by step, walking You out there through the argumentation. This article is called Gamification and Governmentality by Niklas Schrape. And it was published in an anthology titled Rethinking Gamification from 2014. Before we go into that, though, of course, preparing such an episode, going through the reading, putting a script together, that takes some time and effort. And if you want to reward us for doing so and support us in helping more such episodes, then you can subscribe to Studying Pixels Plus where you will get all of our episodes entirely ad-free, a lovely sticker that you can put wherever you like, and monthly plus episodes. Actually, just this week, we released a new one. It's always in the first week of the month that we put out a new one, and this one is on the origins of Nintendo. Guess what? It's about the origins of Nintendo. (laughs) (laughs) Truth in advertising. Yes, and it's exactly (laughs) properly about the origins of Nintendo. Not necessarily like, you know... Donkey Kong and Super Mario, but really the very roots of the company—a very interesting episode, if I may say so. If you're curious about that, then you can head over to studyingpixels.com plus.
2: Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.
0: And it is time for some gamification based on the article Gamification and Governmentality by Niklas Schrape. Now, the article is fairly long and it goes into quite some intricate depths. What we're going to do is we're going to first outline the core principles of gamification. We're going to go into how it enforces brand loyalty, how it makes progress persistent and visible. And then in the third part, we're going to go into how gamification ties into politics and societal aspects. We're going to go into a little bit of Foucault in the process of doing so. But as always, we're going to take you through everything Step by step. You said that as like a caveat. Yeah, <laughs> okay, I'm
1: going to go into Foucault.
0: <laughs> Unfortunately, we have to go into Foucault. The word governmentality is in there. Foucault is necessary. <laughs> but I know that Foucault often scares people away. I'm mm, oh, not Foucault. It's like when <laughs> yeah. I'm when I reference Foucault in my in my classes, it's often like either either people are like, you know despairing because they know they have to work with Foucault or there's absolutely zero reaction because they do not know what they're in for yet. They don't know yet. Yeah. <laughs> yes. My uh, my advisor used to say that Foucault was the F word in academia. <laughs> <laughs> and there's actually some grounds to that because often academics develop pretty consistent theories or they try to. They mm. Put together a theory like building blocks where everything fits together. Foucault, he doesn't do that. He doesn't stick to a specific discipline. Uh, He has some kind of like underlying principles of his thinking, but he really uses terms very flexibly. He often does not bother defining things explicitly, but it's just, well, you can understand in the way that it's being used. And that's why I think Foucault is something like that people don't really like to engage with. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. Well first of all gamification as we said it's a really prominent buzzword it has been in 2014 when this anthology came out and since then my impression is at least that it has only become more prevalent and its key influence is to or its key idea is to influence behavior by providing positive feedback mm. very simple idea but pretty broad is, too it's it's pretty broad yeah it's It differs, though, significantly from how many other domains in our society work, because often enough, we enforce learning by punishing mistakes. When you go to school, for example, you have the situation that if you check a wrong answer in a multiple-choice test, then you will get points subtracted, and you will get a bad grade if you make too many of these mistakes. Also, in general, our entire Society is based on legal regulations that punish you in case you violate the law, but they do not reward you if you abide the law, at least not in the U.S. and not in Germany. It's not like you're going to be like, hey, you didn't get a parking ticket for a year. <laughs> Congratulations. Or, uh,
1: yeah, in, in some kind of, um, I'm not going to say twisted, but in some way, the, the reward is implicit. You know, you are a member of society and you continue to exist freely right? That's the idea. There's no tangible thing. It's not like you get a gift on your doorstep
0: for not breaking the law. (laughs) Yeah, it's a punitive system where it's like, if you you violate the rules, you get punished. If you abide by the rules, then you have the privilege of not getting punished. Oh, that's it. That's the (laughs) soundbite. We always look for that golden nugget in each episode. There it is. (laughs) I need to write the time code down. (laughs) So the idea is, as Niklas Schrape simply puts it, The carrot beats the stick. Mm. In this case of gamification, it's not a carrot, though. It's not a fancy treat. Instead, it is the engagement with the logic of play. Because you said before, you know, I can sit down and I can play through Pokemon for many hours. I sit here and I play through Dragon Quest for hundreds of hours and I'm getting great enjoyment from it. Well, why can't I do that in other domains as well? Why can't we put that kind of gamey logic to things that are otherwise inconvenient to us or not that fun. Well, you already used the word engagement. And I think
1: that that's the, that's the real key, as as specific or as broad as you want to get with gamification, the way that I understand it and the way that I think Shropa defines it too is that there is this level of you are electing to do something and continue to do something to get that reward. It's not like you're... Um, a good example would be I drink water every day, not because I'm looking for a reward, but because I have to as a human being.
0: Yeah. Otherwise, you would die. <laughs> otherwise, I would
1: die. Yeah. But let's say I, I have a goal of 300 ounces a day or something like that. I really want to be hydrated. Well, I could gamify that because I'm electing to make a change and engage with it. So that's the kind of difference, I think, and why gamification gets so muddy, because that's a really easy way to broaden a topic is using that definition.
0: Yeah, and importantly, it's not just um, the carrot or like a reward for positive behavior, that's a key principle of it, but also it is all embedded in the logic of play. So it kind of uh, gives a sense of playfulness for things that are usually not that playful, such as going for a run or learning a language which takes half an eternity. Even things like dating, finding the right partner going onto a dating app where you can, for example, answer certain questions, and then you'll get like a percentage ranking or something to see how good of a match you are. All mm. of these things are basically employing gamification.
1: Min-maxing your dating life.
0: Yes, min-maxing <laughs> your dating life. The most efficient picture possible to put on your profile. <laughs> yeah, that's where we get into dystopia a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, let's wait before we get yeah, into yeah, dystopia yeah. for just a second, because we're going to get there. <laughs> we'll get there. <laughs> One example that Niklas Schrape points at is the Miles and More program by the Lufthansa. Uh, this is a German uh, air trafficking company. Mm. Um, and what they do is, as many other um, flight companies, um, airlines do as well, they have a program where the more you travel with them, the more miles you collect, and the more miles you collect, the more privileges you get. I noticed this
1: because in America, the, the miles program, I'm not, I'm not sure when uh, Lufthansa started really leaning into it, but as far as I can remember, um, you know, I'm, I'm nearly 30, and for as long as I can remember, these miles programs have existed through credit card companies and other things like that. And I find that nowadays every single company has a rewards program through points and purchases. It's not just the airlines, <laughs> it's uh electronic stores, uh burrito shops. <laughs> every place has a rewards program.
0: I must say I struggle with that with all of these apps and bonus points. You go to a, a, to the grocery store they are like do yeah. you want the do you want payback points?" Uh, No, thank you. Do you want our customer loyalty points? No, thank you. Do you want a sticker? I'm like, I I just came here to purchase a (laughs) bit of butter. (laughs) I want a banana is what (laughs) I want. (laughs) I'm hungry. What are you talking to me about? And every single company on this planet has its own app where you need to register and where Mm. you then can, you know, basically always scan a QR code or whatever for your purchase. So you get plus points. And of course, you get that for a reason, because... The idea is to enforce brand loyalty. The idea is to say, if you fly with the Lufthansa or if you shop at our grocery store or if you, even a bakery, you know, a lot of bakeries do these too, where you have like in a very basic sense, these stamp cards, at least in Germany they still exist, where you get like a stamp for each bread you buy. And then every 10th bread is like half off or free or something. Yeah. All to say, come to us. Don't go to the bakery next door. I know there are others, other bakeries. You don't have to think about which bread is better or cheaper or whatever. We c- compel you to come to us because here you'll get your stamp.
1: Well, it kind of it kind of taps into... And, th- and this is where we're kind of getting into insidious territory, which we will continue to explain. But the idea of um, tapping into the gambler's fallacy, this idea that you've put so much into a certain thing, you don't want to walk away from it. Well... I mean, obviously, we're not talking about a $100,000 pot at a poker table when you're going to the bakery. But if you have that punch card and you're maybe at, you know, let's say you're at the ninth one and you're almost at the 10th one, you're going to implicitly say to yourself, well, I'm not going to go to this other bakery even though I like it better because I can get it half off at this other place. So you stick to the same place so that you can reap those rewards. Exactly. Because... Why wouldn't you?
0: You know, it's right. even though the bread might be a little bit, you might enjoy the bread of a different bakery more, or it might be slightly cheaper. But here you've already got the loyalty card. So it feels almost like a waste not to make use of it. Yeah. One other thing that these loyalty cards do is that they make your purchase history or your history with the company persistent. They give you. It can be a physical manifestation of your brand loyalty. It can also be a virtual one or a digital one where you just have, let's say, a level or a ranking or payback points, which as far as I'm concerned, they do not exist. They are a (laughs) lie. I I try to use payback points. Does the system exist in the US as well? Payback points? We have like
1: cashback and things like that. Yeah, where if you spend a certain amount, you get a rebate or something like
0: that. Yeah. And you, you collect points over time with yeah. a specific app and then you can use them uh, and you get like coupons and so on. Yes, But the yeah. thing is, the, the, it's so incremental <laughs> that you need to use it for months and months and months and then you can maybe b- buy a chocolate bar with your with your points. You know what it
1: reminds me of is something we can both relate to. Uh, the Nintendo online point system, for example. Yes. You get these nice points. I think it's like maybe one point for every dollar you spend and you can spend them on things online, but it is so, as you say, incremental that they may as well not exist for the amount of purchases
0: you make online. Because if they would make a difference, they would not have them. No. If it would, be, if it would allow me to basically get so, such a severe discount because I'm a long-term Nintendo fan, then they would cancel the points because they would make loss. In fact, I can actually explain a
1: real-world example of this. GameStop in the U.S. used to have an incredible program called the Power Up Rewards. And you they had different tiers of it. So there was the normal one, there was the pro one, and then there was the elite pro membership. And I used to have that because it was $15 a month, and you would get sometimes on used games up to 50% off more than... The other tiers. So I remember thinking when I bought it, this is not going to be here for long. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> and this, this and company behold, is not
1: going to be here for long. <laughs> <laughs> a year later, they cut it out because some, you know, somebody in the marketing department said, "Oh, that'd be a good idea." And then they probably got fired.
0: <laughs> yeah, it, yeah, it, because the moment that it becomes um, that that it's not profitable anymore for the company, uh, then they would have to cancel such programs. But sometimes, even if it is not necessarily profitable. It also has other positive effects for the company. For example, if you've got a loyalty card, in the case of the Miles and More program of the Lufthansa, uh, you would show it at the airport, or you would have it, you know, tagged on your on your luggage or something like that, um, which has the effect, of course, that if you go into a, a VIP lounge that's only for members or people in a certain range. Um, that they let you in, but also you're dragging it all the way across the airport and everyone can see that you're a premium customer, that you have already cut so and so many miles and it makes you look special. It has a notion of symbolically expressing the loyalty to a particular company.
1: It reminds me to bring it into a, a game example of there's all kinds of different skins in video games, right, On in online games that you can... You can purchase and buy and and where to differentiate yourself from the competition but in a game like world of warcraft there are certain uh mounts animals that you can ride that you only get from spending a certain amount of time in game on that character so it is like a status symbol of hey look at me i've been in this game for this many years and this is what they gifted me when in reality, if you break down what's happened there, it just means you've paid Activision Blizzard $15 a month for five years, and
0: they're giving you this, you know, uh, a specially colored dragon or something. Yeah, <laughs> and that's of course something that incentivizes maybe other players who are then saying, oh, well, what, 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 I see that dragon, sit a player riding on a dragon, that's amazing, how do I get that? And then I might feel like, okay, I've got my subscription already for, I don't know, 12 months, but I need 15, maybe I'll just let it run, even though I'm not playing that much anymore. Um, exactly. Apple is um, ingenious in using this kind of public display of brand loyalty because they put they put their Apple logo everywhere, and especially there where you can see it at all times, such as on the back of the laptop, which many other companies do as well. But of course, also you know on the back of the iPhone, so that when you hold it to your ear, that people that walk past you they see like oh, it's an iPhone. So that wherever you go, wherever you use that product, it immediately states you are an Apple customer. Mm. And this is basically a way through which the logic, not in the case of Apple, but in the other examples that we met, named, where the logic of gamification makes the history with the company something persistent. Uh, normally, when you purchase something or when you make use of a service, schraper argues, in case of flying with an airline, then you are a customer of that airline for the exact time that you spend at the airport and then flying to a different place. Once you leave, you go. You leave the airport and you're no longer a customer of that company. That's why you couldn't call the service hotline and just ask them a random question, like, you know, because yeah. they're not responsible for you anymore. There's no relationship anymore. The tr- financial transaction has been made and the service has been provided. But if you have a loyalty card or some kind of loyalty program, it's like an ID badge. It becomes something that is part of your identity, and that you carry around, and that you tell other people about, or show other people, and it's basically free advertising for them.
1: The easiest thing, I mean, you mentioned Apple, but the thing that comes to my mind too is a Starbucks cup.
0: Yes, Starbucks.
1: I'm going to be honest with you uh, listeners out there, uh, there are a million and one better places than Starbucks for coffee. (laughs) Maybe more than that, probably more than that, but the idea of you carrying around the cup with the Starbucks logo, it immediately puts you into a a bucket of a Starbucks customer who maybe even has one of their reward cards that allows you to have gotten that cup for free, right? It's It's all kind of cyclical and it builds on itself and it's really important for, I mean, I can't imagine any brand nowadays not doing anything like this because it's just the ecosystem.
0: Yeah. And it's especially important on the internet. It's especially important in the age of social media where um, you can't help but notice that whenever I make progress on Duolingo, I fulfilled a certain challenge or I um, did a couple of exercises and got like 100% right, then it will show me a kind of brief screen that pops up that says, you got, today you learned, I don't know, 23 words and you got 100% of them right. And this big share button underneath that because it wants me to share it on Twitter or wherever so that I can show other people, hey, I'm on Duolingo and I'm making progress. I'm smart and I'm learning. Uh, (laughs) And in that way, I'm basically also basically providing a marketing service to Duolingo. We're
1: all living in a big MMORPG.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, and the thing is that it can go so far, Schrape says, that we might not even feel that tied to a brand, but we might even just be tied to the gamification system itself. Mm. If we say, mm, "I want to get those points," "I want to," "I want to get those miles with the miles and more program," because that's what I'm collecting every year. I've got two or three flights to do, and I want to collect those miles. Otherwise, it would be a waste. So I don't think about the company anymore. I don't think is there maybe a better service or a cheaper option. The miles become the primary criterion for my purchase. And that's basically when the program, the gamified program takes over the otherwise, let's say, capitalist logic of saying, you know, the best on the market that has the, the best service for the cheapest price is the one that will win. I would be interested to hear what Shrappa has to say about
1: kind of the meta gamification of things, because to me, you know, we made the joke about min-maxing on like a Tinder website or something, right? But there is something that makes me feel kind of unsettled about people who will forego other companies with maybe better deals because they are so ingrained in one gamified system where they'll say, I have 500,000 miles with Lufthansa, even though this other, uh, flight company has much better deals and is better for my travel system. I can't walk away from those 500,000 miles. It's like, it is the gambler's fallacy where you just, I can't, I have put so much time and effort into it. I mean, whom amongst us hasn't had a game where maybe we haven't beaten the final boss And we say to ourselves, all right, well, I'm going to spend 12 hours grinding because I've spent 100 hours on this game already. I'm not just going to put it down. I have to see how it ends.
0: Well, I agree with everything you say, except for the part that it's a fallacy. Because Mm. I would argue that it is, from a purely reasonable standpoint, it makes perfect sense. Because if I have, let's say, I've got so and so many miles with a certain airline, and then I have a flight to book and I can choose from two or three different options. And one of them is cheaper than the one that I would usually go with. Then I might still say, no, I'm going to collect those miles. That's the primary incentive. Uh, But also because I get privileges for it, because I know that, for example, then I don't have to wait in line at the airport or I can go to a VIP lounge where I get, I don't know, like a free sandwich or something like that. And Or I just have a more comfortable place where I don't have to search for a phone charger around and just sit in these gigantic halls and wait till I'm called up. But instead, everything's like kind of convenient. Maybe I get a free coffee and a sandwich or whatever. And so these reward programs, they render the logic of gamification something that's also reasonable. Like it's a reasonable choice to make.
1: I'm trying to think of a a good concrete example. And I, I maybe don't have one, but I'm thinking of times where... Uh, I've been so beholden to a gamified system that I've actually found relief when I've said to myself, "You know what? Forget it. I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna bother with this." And I guess the one thing that I can think of is Duolingo, where it's like, "All right, listen, Duo. I know you're gonna come to my house and you know buckle my knees in my in my bed if I don't continue with my German lesson, but." I have something else to do, so goodbye to the streak. I'm
0: sorry. <laughs> yeah, it can feel so liberating to yeah. turn your back on such a system and be just like, I get what you're doing, you know. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I see through the matrix here. <laughs> uh, also, the interesting thing, last point on this uh, miles and more thing, and on the uh, you know the the way that gamification renders uh, loyal, brand loyalty persistent and manifest is that it can also, according to Schrape, manifest in Actual physical space. I mentioned this VIP lounge several times, which you can access at the airport. And all of us have seen such VIP lounges where there's a a conspicuous door through which only certain people are allowed to go. And you just wonder who gets through there, you know? This magical land. This (laughs) magical land where it's just like, it's complete paradise. Milk and honey, you know, rivers of milk Milk and honey. honey.
1: The seats are made of phone chargers. Yeah.
0: (laughs) And then instead, you know, I back in the day when I still used to smoke, which luckily I don't do anymore, instead I'm standing like in these like small smoking cabins where the air is so thick that you can slice through it. (laughs) Oh, that's depressing. I'm actually really glad to have quit cigarettes. Me too. (laughs) But um, these lounges, they are actually physical, persistent things. So this is an example of how. Gamification can alter spaces. An airport usually is, according to Marc Auger, it's a non-place because it doesn't have anything homely. Like when you when you have a home, you make it a place, is what Marc Auger says. By decorating it, you make it personal, you make it yours. Your apartment tells a lot about your history, your life, and about who you are. Whereas an airport. Is kind of the opposite. And the airport says nothing about the people that are in there. Everyone is equally anonymous. Everyone just walks through there and uh, is just a passenger. And gamification changes that. It changes that by basically saying, here, we're going to bring something persistent, something personal, such as a particular passenger being a premium customer into the structure of the airport and implement a hierarchy, a social hierarchy in this physical space. I think this is most frightening in the case of uh, governments that implement such systems, such as the uh, Chinese, uh, I don't know how it's called, the system. There's a particular system, the citizen something system.
1: Yeah, it's it's like the social credit system.
0: The social credit system, where you basically get rewarded for being a good citizen.
1: You have a number. Yeah. And it's like uh there's a Black Mirror episode that um is very much in terms of all right, what's your social number? You know, what's your social credit score? Are you going to be able to go into this place? Are you going to be able to talk to this person? Are you going to be trusted? Right? This is the kind of insidious uh point of gamification that gets a little scary.
0: Oh, I can totally recommend watching that Black Mirror episode because there's a particular sequence as you said where the protagonist goes to an airport. We're again talking about airports uh, because she wants to fly out to the wedding of a friend. However, due to an incident that happened before, her social credit score, it uh, ranked lower now, or it it fell a little bit. So now it it fell below a certain threshold and only people who are above this threshold are allowed to board the plane. So she can't board the plane. Her mobility is limited because she's got a lower rating. And uh, I don't have much uh, data for what
1: what China looks like, but when we've got the uh, social credit score, things are getting a little dicey, I think.
0: Ah, yes, we have data. We have to talk about data. We have to talk about big data. That's the next step in the argumentation of Niklas Schrape, because he says, and this is something that we've just noticed in all the examples we've given, that gamification only works if data is collected and effectively made use of. So this means, of course, that maybe not the, let's exclude the loyalty cards at the bakery. <laughs> they are not that, uh, that advanced yet, though they can easily be. <laughs> uh, if you in have like, you know, instead you've got like a barcode system where you need to scan or you need to register with a company. But even things like the, you said the cashback points or in Germany would be the payback points. Of course, the moment you scan the, your payback uh, app at the cashier at the register of the grocery store the data of your purchase is transmitted to the company and is stored there who will then you know do something with it they will evaluate it and sell it on to for effective advertising for example mm. so data is really a crucial part of what's being traded here and i find the observation that Schrape makes on the matter of big data is very important because mm. Schrape says big data is not just a lot of data. It's not like, um, you know, you have a data package that tells you I today purchased uh, butter and cheese and a pack of sandwiches. But big data, it is so much data that is um computationally processed and analyzed so that it allows you a different view of the world a level of abstraction that you normally would not be able to reach where you can for example understand that people who purchase like a several several categories of products on these and these days and times um, because all of that is being tracked of course um, they are usually i don't know Uh, single, uh, employed in a maybe mid-range salary position and Mm. basically deduce all these kind of aspects and then reapply that to build a filter and to say to a different company, for example, if you want to advertise a home theater system, for example, then we've got a perfect list of people that are highly likely to actually react to that ad or to purchase a home theater system in the next month.
1: Yeah. It's, it's the idea that it's the difference between an app is trying to figure out what would be best for you versus what is trending to be best for people like you. Right. Because if you mentioned the grocery store analogy, I could see, uh, a situation where, okay, we've collected all of this, all of this big data saying that at one in the afternoon, this particular type of person buys this sandwich, right? So, if you want to move more of those sandwiches, I recommend that you start pushing advertisements to this demographic of people around this time of day, because it seems like that's when they're most likely to buy something like this. That's more what we're talking about, right? Where it's just taking all of these inputs and filtering them into advertisements.
0: Yeah. And for example, you can then say the advertisements that we do. We know that our target audience is most likely, I don't know, male and between 20 and 30 years old. So, if we put like we hire a model, someone to present our product, we will of course take someone from that target audience or someone that that target audience would find particularly attractive to catch their attention. And so, you can basically make use of big data in ways that you would not be able to make use of individual data. I think that's the crucial point. That's what For me, I always find that a little bit hard to comprehend because I always thought, okay, big data is just like a huge chunk of data. But it's by virtue of how the data is being processed Mm. that new insights are possible that would not have been possible if you had all of these packages just separately lined up next to one another. Right.
1: It's just putting the right filters on to find what they're looking for with all of the data that they have, right?
0: Yeah. And one of the crucial things that that does, according to Schrape is it emphasizes correlation over causation. So it, big data shows you, as we've said in these examples, that the group of, that has these and these attributes is most likely to purchase a tuna mayo sandwich at 8 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> maybe you know that would be a group of people who regularly who goes to work who have like an early start and so on they don't have time to have breakfast they most likely don't have a family otherwise they would eat at home and so on you can tell all the kind of things about these people and you then you do not know why these people purchase a tuna sandwich and you don't know why they purchase that particular sandwich the reasoning for why they purchase it is actually immaterial it's only about the fact that they do and that you can predict it right and i think further
1: what's what's useful to all of these companies and all these you know taking all of this data is building this sort of uh or profile of the kind of person who would buy a tuna sandwich at 8 a.m right because as you say Maybe they don't have a family. Maybe they're working very hard. So what else might appeal to this person, right? And then maybe they're getting on, on Amazon. They're getting ads for, I don't know, uh, like a lunch pail or I don't know, something, right? It's just this sort of thing where, okay, we've all had this situation where we feel like somebody's listening to us because we've said, you know, I really need a, a water fountain for my cat. And then all of a sudden that'll pop up. And I think it's it's <laughs> equally uh, as likely that your purchase history and your kind of online profile just leads you to these things maybe they saw that you bought things for a cat maybe you they saw that you don't have this kind of water fountain right and so here it is it's pushed to you because you'll probably like it
0: yeah that's exactly the magic that you experience when you think of ah oh, i should really work out a little bit more maybe you speak to people about it or send a couple of messages maybe you post about it on social media and then maybe you look into some equipment on amazon and uh, suddenly then, um, you get a YouTube advertisement for the gym that's very close by, you know, that has a chain store nearby. This is exactly how big data can be used to try and influence people to make the choices that is, of course, in favor of the company's interest that puts out such advertisements.
1: I think also, to to uh, to make my position clear, I, I'm not advocating for some kind of, um, you know... <laughs> I don't think there's any kind of creepy ulterior motive. I think it is just advertising. And I also think that uh, a lot of the time, recency bias plays a a factor into it, too. Because Stefan, if you and I are talking about going to a gym, and then I see an advertisement for a gym, I will think, oh, that's funny. I was just talking to Stefan about that, right? It's kind of like, well, you were thinking about it anyway. That's why that advertisement popped out to you.
0: Yeah. And I think it's very important that you emphasize we're not talking here about some kind of um, I don't know secretive conspiracy and not something that people try to brainwash you instead. Um, it's quite the opposite actually, as we're going to explain in just a second. Um, but uh, it's merely like describing how these principles work and that they can be used for something terrible. Um, of course, we spoke about the you know social credit system in China. But they can also be used to something to great effect for something positive. I've said several times now that I like to use Duolingo because it incentivizes me. I like to close my move ring on my Apple Watch. And of course, when it tells me, hey, um, it's 8 p.m. already, if you do a 10-minute walk now, then you can close your move ring, I might feel incentivized to say, of course, then, you know, I'm going to go out and walk a little bit around the block, listening to some music, and when I come back, I'm going to have the satisfying feeling of having achieved that goal for the day. So it can go both ways gamification is not inherently good or bad it depends on how you make use of it Mm. now let's take a brief break and afterwards we're going to go into the subject of what it means for the behavior of people to be affected by gamification and how it can be used to change their behavior
1: planning for your next trip
0: And we are back talking about Gamification and Governmentality, a text by Niklas Schrape from 2014. So far, we have explored the basic principles of gamification, as in enforcing positive behavior, or desired behavior, I'm going to say, to, you know, withdraw from the normative implication. It's desired behavior. By implementing a sort of gamified system, into a domain that's not necessarily a game, such as fitness, dating, health, whatever it is, being loyal to a brand, and so on and so forth. We also explored how big data plays a huge role in that, because only by the accumulation of lots and lots of data, you can get a bigger and more abstract viewpoint on what's going on. Now, there is another term that comes into play here, and now we get a little bit into the direction of Foucault, as we announced in the beginning. It is the term libertarian paternalism. What this means is that, um, well, yeah, I'm going to just dissect it first as a word. Libertarian, obviously, it, wouldn't, it means it's like a, like a total commitment to freedom, right? To put freedom above all else is libertarian. Correct. Yep. Anything that infringes on any freedom of any kind is bad. Yes, libertarian. And on the other hand, paternalism is, of course, comes from the word father, is the idea of having some kind of father role. Now, how do these two fit together? Because a father role is more associated with something that takes responsibility and potentially also freedom away from people. By combining those two, it means that um, a government, for example, or even a company... It might uh, basically try to maximize freedom for customers or citizens, but then design the systems in which people operate in a way that they make the desired choices. There's a good quote on page 35 where Schrape says the following, libertarian paternalism implies that, for example, the state grants its subjects the freedom of choice but designs all possible options in such a way that they will decide in an intended way. The subjects should feel free, but their behavior is regulated. End quote.
1: I think the, the charitable reading of this, especially from our prior reading circles, is that you're working in the magic circle, right? You're playing in the rules that the company has set up. You have the choice for, you have the freedom to make these choices within the parameters of the system
0: they've created. Exactly. The system, in fact, is setting up the parameters that give the choice meaning at all. Mm -hmm. Uh, This is how we explored the requirement of rules in order to produce meaning for the actions within the circle of play. And one of my favorite examples of libertarian paternalism is product placement in grocery stores. And in this case, I don't mean product placement as in advertisement. I just mean how the products are sorted or arranged in grocery stores. And I don't know whether this is the case for you as well, Dan, but there are some key principles for grocery stores that I think probably apply globally, such as eggs and milk must be on the opposite ends of the store. This is because uh, these are goods that many, many people buy. And often they need both of them. And in order to make them walk through the entire store and walk past all of the other products, potentially you put even some products on sale in between, you will get more attention for those goods. That's why you need to put them on opposite ends. Exactly. And I'm thinking of my own grocery store, (laughs) the one that I go to, because it's true. If you,
1: but this is where big data comes in, right? Because big data says that the most common items are milk and eggs that is the that's where the curve shows us if you're only going in for one thing it's probably one of those right so put them on the opposite ends of the store so that if you have to on the off chance get both of them then you're walking through the entire store to see everything else and you may say oh you know what i do need bread oh i do need uh this uh sausage that's being you know advertised to me on this stand right it's, it's a really
0: clever tactic to make you stay in there longer. Exactly. Staying in there longer, I think, is the crucial point because big data also shows that the longer a person is in the store, the more they will buy and the more they will spend. Thus, the most prof- profit. So what you need to do is you need to try to have them stay as long as possible. Um, for example, grocery stores often have um, uh, their aisles structured in a way that it breaks up your pattern of walking through so that you need to go around corners or you can't just go like diagonally straight to a product because (laughs) they basically have got all kinds of shelves lined up so that you need to go in between the aisles. And ideally you go through all the aisles or you have to go through as many of them as possible because then you'll see all of the products. Two more examples that I really like. Uh, One is that uh, cheapest products in Germany are always at the very bottom where you need to basically, you need to crouch down or to actively look down in order to get the cheaper. It's also like to kind of humiliate poor people probably.
1: (laughs) Oh no. (laughs) That's interesting. So I don't, we don't, we don't have that. But what we do have is um, there's often like the bargain bins where expired food or uh, food that's about to go off is put. And it's usually put in the center of really expensive things so that you have to go, you know, you, you, what's the thinking there? Oh, I'm saving money on this pasta sauce. Maybe I'll buy this expensive bacon that's right next to it. You know?
0: Yeah. That's what it is. Maybe the, the things that are on sale, they seem to be cheaper because you have a more expensive anchor point because you see next to it like, yeah, there's the, the bacon where I have to pay maybe, I don't know, $5 or something. And then here's the bacon and it's only $2. And then, I don't even consider that maybe $2 might be too much for bacon it's, instead. I say, right, wow, right. it's so cheap. Yeah. Ah, uh, we're, we're breaking the codes. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> There's more. I love grocery stores. It's fantastic. I can, <laughs> I can only encourage you to go through the grocery store with great curiosity. For example, uh, vegetables, the vegetables mm. section. It is often placed in a way that the vegetables look very fresh and tasty. There's often a special kind of light um that is implemented to so that the vegetables they shimmer a little bit uh, you put you take the apple home and put it on the table and it doesn't look as pretty anymore as it did in the store with all the rich stuff often some like you know green wrapping around there or some like you know boxes that seem kind of nature kind of organic mm. and of course the classic trick uh you put the snacks and all the unhealthy stuff directly next to the register Mm-hmm. especially the things that are for children because then you need to wait in line at the register anyway and the child will be like, I want the Snickers bar or whatever. Yeah, they're looking at it the entire time.
1: Yeah, and it's <laughs> Why tempting. would you take me here if
0: we're not getting them? Yes, it's tempting yeah. and then you stand there, you look around, inevitably you look at the goods and then you might just purchase something. But not to mention all, all the just
1: uh, pageantry and stagecraft that goes into grocery stores. Yes. Where I remember as a kid, I would wait, you mentioned vegetables. Uh, you know, they have the, the misters that will, um, every few minutes, they'll spray out a light mist of water onto the vegetables to make them, to keep them fresh. And I used to wait around because it was like a spectacle as a kid. Oh, look, the misters. <laughs> so there's all, all kinds of things happening to, as you say, nudge you in the direction of
0: buying certain things I think we should do an entire episode just on grocery stores even though we are <laughs> technically a video game podcast but we can uh, we could find a way we could gamify it <laughs> yeah th- th- there's more the the grocery carts they yeah. are usually quite big they are so big not because lots of people put, like fill them up entirely that's often hardly possible unless you do like a really big shop but um, they're so big so that the products that you buy they look smaller in the cart and it looks like you still have room which Mm. is why they're designed with a certain spaciousness. Tricky, tricky grocery stores. (laughs) (laughs) Often, there's also, in Germany, there's one particular example. Uh, I'm just going on now just for the lols. There's uh, normally in, I think, most grocery stores in Germany, the price tag for the product is below the product. So you always see like you have a box of milk and then the price is below that. There is one particular chain, it's called Lidl, though, in Germany, that puts the prices above the products. The reasoning for that is that you conflate them, because you're used to just looking at the price at the bottom, so they would put a cheaper product below, and then people would kind of just glance over it, and they would see like, oh, yeah, cheap milk, you know, or milk's on sale, and then they grab the product and don't realize that they're actually purchasing the more expensive one. Uh, that's a little sneaky. Yeah, that's <laughs> sneaky. I, I really like these things. I really find them very interesting. That's called nudging. It's called nudging because um, it is completely and entirely your choice which products in a supermarket you buy, presuming, of course, that you have the financial means to do so. But um, it, it's entirely your choice. However, the store will be structured in such a way to incentivize you to spend more and to purchase more expensive things. It reminds me of, uh, in open
1: world games where there's nudging in the sense of, uh, you don't, maybe you don't know where to go. And then you talk to a companion and they say, oh, there's something strange going on in this town, you know? And it's like, well, you don't have to go there, but that's where you should go.
2: Yeah.
0: You don't have to go there. You can also just waste everyone's time by wandering around aimlessly (laughs) or you can just go there. The snarky
1: companions. Yeah. Yeah. I guess we could
0: waste more time here. (laughs) And again, of course, uh, this principle of nudging it is it can also again, be used for good or bad. Like we don't have to necessarily um, attach a normative label to it because, of course, mm. uh, lots of grocery stores, for example, use it to promote products that are healthier. They put the healthier products directly in your in your um, view. So that you basically you go towards a shelf you have like some kind of bio products label and these bio products they have a specific design they've got like specific labels that they uh, put on them maybe imagery of a farm or whatever who knows uh, it's designed in a way to incentivize people to purchase not only expensive products but also bio products because that's healthy and you can that's why you can say nudging can really have a very positive effect on people on their life and on their health.
1: I'm thinking of of again my grocery store now because you're you're so right because there's two entrances and most most stores like this in America are like this. There's two entrances. One goes to kind of the pharmacy where there's all there's the medicine up front and then the other one is produce, the butchers and the bakers. So it's all the kind of fresh healthy things and then in between is the processed stuff that they're probably making more money on anyway. <laughs> but it, it is you know you go in and think okay this is the fresh market that i'm here for
0: yeah and this is exactly the same um when we speak about um you know i want to close my move ring so i go outside and do so i basically get a nudge it is perfectly my choice and my choice alone whether i want to do that or not but by nudging a certain behavior is enforced and the crucial point is this is where the libertarian paternalism comes back into play It is your choice, but there are nudging mechanisms implemented. And these nudging mechanisms, they do not try to convince you. They don't try to reason with you. That's a different approach. Of course, there are also spots that air on TV, probably financed by the government, that say, hey, we just want to let you know that there's like, you know, going vegan can be really healthy and lower your cholesterol and you'll be happier and healthier and fitter. That's kind of a way to try and reason with people. Nobody has time for reasoning with people. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you just want to, as gamification does, not convince them, but just influence their behavior directly. And that's what, game, what gamification is really good at. They're not, gamification is not for convincing people or arguing with them. It's about making them do stuff, even without them thinking about it. Now, this is, of course, where governmentality the last section, comes into play. Because Schrape, he refers back to Foucault and he points out that gamification promises to be a form of new governmentality. Mm. Now, governmentality, again, a term by Michel Foucault, it does not necessarily mean just government. Governmentality is any kind of thing that regulates the behavior of people. And that can be, of course, um, by the state, but it can also be something by private companies, for example, or by social circles that enforce certain behavior. To clarify that a little bit, so
1: if if my understanding is correct, then the idea is that government is just the meat and potatoes, they're making the trains run they're making the the roads are fixed you know taxes are being collected just the kind of objective things that a government needs to do to function but governmentality is like what you were saying earlier with the vegan uh advertisement where it's sort of like saying the idea of governmentality is that there are certain behaviors and subjective things that the government wants to influence and so that's where that distinction is is that correct
0: yeah um I would want to emphasize, though, that governmentality does also apply to governments. It's, mm, okay. it's basically... Uh, it's, governmentality is the answer to the question how does a certain institution regulate people's behavior or try to influence people's behavior and what kind of principles apply. For example, Foucault, he would point out that historically uh, the like, states were run on the idea of pastoral power, Uh, This is the idea of kind of the government is like a shepherd. It's obviously a very religious notion that's influenced by medieval Christianity. The government as a shepherd is in the situation of taking responsibility for the well-being of the sheep and guiding them, thinking for them, making decisions for the sheep. What the sheep want is not that really important because the shepherd looks out for them anyway. So this is really a historical idea of governmentality, whereas in modern governmentality the idea is more, as Schrape says, um maximizing wealth and um uh, controlling subjects with force. So it's kind of um the government sees itself as being in the position of we have to Keep the economy running, so a little bit like right. you said, the trains, and so we basically we set the playing field for the economy and for capitalism to properly unfold, so everyone can be rich and wealthy. Whether that works or not, it's, not a, it's, a, different it's a different matter. Different podcast, different podcast, yeah. <laughs> <It's a> different <laughs> podcast, yeah. <laughs> but that is the idea. Whereas the new paradigm that we're entering now with gamification, it pairs perfectly well with. Uh, libertarian or neoliberal ideology. It is the idea that the state should be small. The idea of a small state. The state doesn't get involved in your daily affairs. The state takes on the role of a game master. It orchestrates and implements rule systems and the logic of life, you could say. Uh that enforces, you, enforces behavior in certain ways. It makes you change your behavior. Um, it, for example, it doesn't outlaw tobacco, but it gradually raises the price um, or the, the taxes to the degree that it just becomes no longer affordable for most people.
1: It starts nudging you in the
0: direction of giving up. Exactly. And it might then also cooperate with health insurance companies who say if you uh, go through a quit smoking program and if you uh, do your health checkups and get a certificate from the doctor, then you can submit that to us and become part of a bonus program. Uh, And then we will, I don't know, we will give you 200 bucks or whatever. Uh, We will give you some kind of reward. Actually, my health insurance does that. Like if you get your regular tooth cleaning and your regular checkups and so on, then you can submit them and you get like... 50 euro coupon for something.
1: Yeah, it's. Uh, I'm thinking of um, my auto insurance and how you your premiums are less and less the fewer accidents you have. So obviously, I mean, that makes sense logically, but also
0: it's incentivizing you to be a safe driver. Exactly. Yeah. And a perfect example for why gamification is not necessarily insidious. It is just mm. something that, and this is what Schrape is most concerned about, that skips over um, causality. Uh, that he says causality in the wake of this disappears into the black box. Because what we are looking at in the case of gamification and in the case of this new governmentality is we're looking at data, at big data, at abstract data and correlations. And we don't need to understand why these things influence each other to such a degree. We just need to understand that they do. And then we can, you know, change the parameters to influence behavior.
1: Well, I mean, I think that that's that's very reasonable because I think all of our fears of big data and the gamification on a massive scale is that the human element gets reduced. And I was thinking about your your tuna sandwich example, right? And this idea that, you know, taking causality out of that example can lead to taking real human suffering out of it. And this sounds silly, but go with me on this, right? Imagine that one of those men, one of those young men, who's buying a tuna sandwich at eight in the morning is not doing so because he doesn't have family or because he's buying it for lunch later, but because he was up all night drinking and that's all he can afford to eat after a bender due to alcoholism, right? That's a sad story that gets lumped into the big data. And so I I agree with Shrappa in the sense that, you know, once the human element is gone, things get a little sad.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it can be really tough, um, but this is exactly the perspective that gamification avoids and enforces behavior without thinking about the actual thing, without having to convince someone. Mm, I want to also point out that, for me, I see great opportunity in gamification. I know certainly lots of things that we said, they sounded super negative, and... There are also huge pitfalls. I think gamification is at its most dangerous when it becomes this sort of buzzword that we have described that it is a buzzword that people throw around, where people just say, We solve the problems of the world with gamification. We, you know, when, we, when it's about schools and education, we implement gamification systems to have people learn. And then you might overlook, okay, so maybe your you know your students they now get uh, stars and points um, on their virtual profiles, which they can then use or can be added together to form some kind of grading system or whatever, and we completely neglect the fact that there needs to be also an intrinsic motivation for studying or why someone is genuinely curious about the subject, and they might not want to interact just with a a point system. <laughs> to basically propel them forward.
1: Well, and I think that's why the causality piece is so important, because if you're if you don't have the why behind a gamified system, then you're just beholden to the system itself, right? If you don't have a goal or a or a an idea that you're working towards and using the gamification as a tool to get there, I think you you kind of get lost in the weeds and think, well the gamification is the thing, right? And let, to to put this in real terms going back to our fitness example i may develop a gamified system to continue working out and get myself to the gym and lose weight and get healthier but if i get so wrapped up in the system and i kind of lose the forest for the trees and say to myself well i don't even care about my health anymore it's just fulfilling the fitness game <laughs> that i've created that's a problem right because then it's just the game for the game's sake instead of trying to get your goal out of it
0: especially if these systems are primarily designed then to get you moving and then for example you might have a day where you don't feel so well um this is actually a problem that in my mind apple fitness still has quite a lot where it's like you can't just simply select a day off i'm or sick something yeah. where i'm sick <laughs> It's just like, hey, fulfill your movering, you know, it's like, oh God, this iPhone is going to choke me if I don't go outside, even though I have to take painkillers to do so. (laughs) It, It is, it does have some severe problems. And I think gamification is cool and promising, but we need to reflect upon its issues. We need to reflect upon the fact that it is so strongly aimed at behavior that we can lose sight of the actual engagement with the matter itself. I also think that it is very strongly inclined to collect data, which is, of course, data is the most valuable good of our time, um, of our day and age. I mean, that we need to give people a sufficient amount of control over what kind of data they want to give, and we need to also, I think, facilitate a sort of social climate where the idea is not to collect as much data as possible, but rather collect only the data that you need to build that system, that motivational system. I, w- I want to end with, because I, I was just reminded
1: of a story, and this is going to sound self-aggrandizing, but I really don't mean it to, because I want to focus on this this kid. So when I was about 15, maybe 16, um, I went to a boarding school, and one of my teachers had a son with sort of special needs, and he didn't... He, not not severely but he just couldn't he he was dyslexic um he wasn't able to kind of visualize numbers very well and she asked me hey have you have you ever tutored anyone before and i said no and uh i said but i i wonder if this will work and i came up with cuz i knew he loved video games and i came up with an experience point system and i said we're going to i'm going to teach you this one-on-one. We're going to learn fractions. That's what we were doing. And I said, for every fraction you get right, I'm going to give you a point. And for every experience point, you'll reach a level and then you and I will do something fun. Like I'll get you McDonald's or, you know, I'll get you a candy bar or we'll go out and play baseball for a little while. And um, I don't know how well he's doing now in math, but I can tell you that he felt much more comfortable with it when we gamified it like that. So I think that that to me is always the example of no. This is a good. This this is a very potentially good thing. You just have to keep the human element in there.
0: Well, thank you so very much for listening to this episode on Niklas Schrape's gamification and governmentality. If you've got any thoughts, questions, or corrections, then feel free to reach out to studyingpixels.com/contact. And if you wish to, then you can follow us on Twitter, where you get all kinds of updates on studying pixels, including, of course, a little ping in your feed whenever a new episode is released. Thank you so very much for listening, and see you again next week.
1: Hey, folks, I'm Mark Maron from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultrasoft Tissues